beautiful music. In fact, that last, uh, not this particular one, but the last hymn was written by Charles Wesley. And of course, this great chorus that we just sang. Just a reminder again, no services this evening. We will conclude uh, Dr. Paul Tripp's uh, video series next Sunday night on parenting, on um, basically teenagers. So please bear that in mind if you would. So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching this morning via the internet, we do welcome you. And along with our congregation, to begin with, turn with me to Luke 24. A number of different passages of Scripture. We have uh, pew Bibles, and you can follow along with those. We will go to Acts 1. We will go to 1 Timothy 3, but we're going to start with Luke 24 this morning. In fact, we're going to read Luke 24 portion of it, Acts 1 and 1 Timothy 3. So in Luke's gospel, since we a number of years ago preached through the gospel of Luke, and Luke, Luke's gospel is the longest gospel, it is the longest book in the New Testament. And when you combine the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which he wrote, that is about a third of the New Testament. He wrote actually more words than Paul did. So a gifted uh, historian, a physician, and a man obviously that loved the Lord. Beginning in verse 44, Luke says this. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which was written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Acts chapter 1. First eight verses, we will eventually cover the first 11 verses, but I want to read the first eight this morning. The former account I made, O Theophilus, Theophilus was a Gentile name, it means lover of God. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, 
being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, to the echo points of the earth, to places that you like to go and places you don't like to go. The gospel is going. First Timothy chapter 3. Verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. The resurrection is not the end of the story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Teach us what we do not know. We pray, Father, that you would humble us when we are far too proud and we pray that by the Spirit of God, you would make us like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing. It is the triune God on display, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We finished the Passion Week, and for 2,000 years, Christians have celebrated the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and they are essential components of being born again. They are essential components of the gospel. But without the ascension of Christ, they are incomplete. As Paul Harvey used to say, this is the rest of the story. Christ ascended into heaven. And as he did, and as we've read, his ascension is arguably the least considered aspect of the work. If you remember in Acts 1, and we'll review that later on in the message this morning, in Acts 1, he said... As Luke was writing to Theophilus, this is the 
the record of all Jesus began to do and to teach. And so he begins with the ascension. You know, most folks, if you meet them, they not they probably don't have a an inkling much about the Bible, but they know a little bit about Jesus. They can tell you something about Christmas, about the virgin birth. And perhaps they know something about the events of this past week, the cross. After all, many people wear crosses today having no idea what they mean. And for the, mo- for the most part, it's jewelry. That's it. But if you were to ask people, in fact, if you were to ask many in the church what Jesus is presently doing or what he will continue to do, most of them would struggle to answer that question. We just read from Luke 24, and Luke ends his gospel message with the story of the ascension, and he begins the book of Acts with the story of the ascension, with a more detailed description of what took place. So, you don't have to respond this morning, but how often does the ascension of Jesus Christ enter your mind? As I said, in well over 40 years of ministry, I've taught on it a couple of times, but basically just read the Scripture. This year, in fact, it's Ascension Day is celebrated every year, and this year it's celebrated on the 26th of May, 40 days after this particular day. But you see, as Baptists, we rarely celebrate it. Now, we're excited about the resurrection of Christ, and we should be. It is emblematic of the gospel, and without the resurrection, there's no salvation. But here's the other thing. Without the ascension, there's no salvation. That was clearly taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, thankfully, Scripture does not end with Jesus upon a bloody cross. We don't have a a fearful Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have a, a hanging Christ. We don't even, the scripture does not even end with a resurrected Jesus Christ. But it ends with the most neglected, or at least the work of Jesus, ends with the most neglected aspect of the work of Christ, which is his ascension. In fact, that's what we're going to look out, look at this morning. Now, if you're listening, say amen. amen. What we're going to find, and I didn't realize this until I started to study. To, turn with me to Luke chapter 9 to begin with, Luke 9. And as I said, have your Bibles ready because we're going to be all about the Bible this morning. Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> But when you start to look at the references to the ascension or the, a ref, the references to him being taken up in glory, you will find uh, 
in the New Testament that there are almost as many references to his ascension as there are to his resurrection. So that's important. In fact, if it were mentioned just one time, it would be important, but the fact that it's mentioned almost as much as the resurrection gives us some clue as to why it's important. Look, if you would, at verse um, 51, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that's the ascension. that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We think, we were preaching through this many years ago, I, I think I reminded you that at this particular point in time is about six months, maybe as much as a year before his crucifixion, but it was very close, closer than obviously the beginning of his ministry. When the time had come for him to be received up, now, this was not new to the, uh, to, to the disciples, although Acts chapter 1, they're just standing there, Jesus is gone, and the Lord dispatched two angels to come and tell them, what are you doing? So Jesus had constantly reminded them, in fact, in the book of John, we're going to look at a number of different passages. And so he resolutely set out for Jerusalem knowing that he had a date with his crucifixion, with his death, with his resurrection, and eventually his ascension. Ultimately, the work, the earthly work of Jesus came to an end. Now, it continues today at the right hand of God, but his earthly work came to an end. Now, we know that, sort of, in the back of our minds, but we don't give much thought to it. And Jesus did not keep this from his disciples. Turn with me to John 13. They were having that RCA Victor dog look, you know, turning your head like this and boom, over my head, there it goes. Look at verse 1. <clears throat> Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to be with his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Look at chapter 14. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, he says, to prepare that place, I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And where I go you know and the way you know. Look at verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Look at verse 27 and 28. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going and coming back. I am going away and I am coming back. Look at chapter 15 and look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, and that's key, and we'll talk about the helper. That's the Spirit of God. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. I will send the helper to you from the Father. I'm not going to be here. He is. Chapter 16. Verses 5 through 7. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, why, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. It is important to you. It is necessary for you that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. No ministry of the Holy Spirit on earth until Jesus leaves, or at least in the, in the way that he is teaching here in the upper room discourse. Look at verse 10. When the Spirit comes, he's convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And verse 10 says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Look at verse 17. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, now Jesus has mentioned this a half a dozen times, at least. And now it begins to dawn on them. What is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while you will see me because I go to the Father. So they began to, in the, in, the, in the midst or the fog of the upper room, it begins to dawn on them what Jesus is teaching them. Now remember, he's been teaching them for hours and John records this. Then look at verse 28. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And one final in, in John's gospel, John chapter 20. <clears throat> Verse 15, Jesus said to her, this is Mary Magdalene, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell, him where you, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbani, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. 
But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. So these are just the pronunciation or the pronouncements rather of Jesus to his disciples about his leaving and going to be with the Father. Now this was many, many years ago, probably 1,600 if not more years ago now, 1,700. This was capsulized in what is known as the Apostles' Creed. First slide, uh, brother. And this is the Apostles' Creed. Now I want us to read this together, so stand with me this morning. The Apostles' Creed was assembled because 1,700 or so years ago, people didn't take their Bibles everywhere they went. So this encapsulates, rather, the work of Jesus Christ. This was memorized so that the disciples would know about Jesus and the gospel. Let's read this together. Church, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, don't get afraid of the word Catholic there. It simply means universal. That's all it means. He's not talking about this time when it, when it was formulated. It was not, the Catholic Church had not been essentially started. So it just simply means the holy universal church. So you will notice there that I have highlighted, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Literally millions of sermons and, and the teachings, studies and teachings <coughs> have majored on Christ's first advent, on his virgin birth, on his life, and the Passion Week. Now that is something that ought to be done, obviously. But without the ascension, the gospel possesses no present real-time power. The ascension concludes the work of Christ, and through the ascension, he is crowned Lord of all. And we sang about that this morning. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Now the Bible says, and we read in a number of places, and we'll look at it again, that when Christ ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Now, God does not have any hands. He's spirit. Christ does. He's the God-man. When he became incarnate, he forfeited his spirit being. Not that he can't be spirit, but he is part and parcel now of a corporeal body, that body that is resurrected. So the image is one of authority and one of power. And when he sat down, which which is emblematic of his completion of the work, when Christ sat down, it indicated and inaugurated the hope of the gospel that is shared to us by the Spirit of God. It also inaugurated our participation in the Great Commission. Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew. He gives a portion of it in Mark and in Luke. John doesn't speak of it, although it is certainly alluded to in the Gospel of John and primarily in the first chapter of the book of Acts. When Jesus left, it inaugurated you and I as born-again believers and the opportunities that we have to present the gospel to a lost and dying world by the power of the Spirit of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. It, it, we could read the entire chapter, but I want to focus on <clears throat> the latter part. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? But that's not the end of the story. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet. Because he takes this position of authority, because of his obedience to his Father, all things are placed under the feet of Jesus Christ. That's an Old Testament understanding brought into the New Testament, which says that everything that lives, moves, and breathes is under the dominion and authority of Jesus Christ. And so that means this morning, if you're here and you're unsaved, or if you're watching and listening and you're unsaved, you're still under the authority of Jesus Christ. That changes not. He put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Unfortunately, there has been much poor teaching and theological misunderstanding, even among professing believers today, and even in churches where the scripture is held as an errant, because we have not given the right understanding 
of the ascension and the work of Jesus Christ. No ascension, no seat at the right hand of God. It could not be fulfilled on earth. If it could be, Jesus would still be here. This is the work of God. Second slide. Now, the ascension is linked to the resurrection. They complement each other. In fact, it's fair to say, obviously, if there was no resurrection, we wouldn't have the New Testament. And if there were no ascension after the resurrection, we still would not have the New Testament. So when we look at these, these events, I want us to, to, again, a number of passages of Scripture. But I want to give you a little bit of detail as to why this is important. Well, if it's, a, if it's linked to the events of the resurrection, then what are the events and why is the ascension linked? Well, here's the first thing. Turn back to John 19. Before Jesus could be buried. Pilate required a death certificate from the centurion that oversaw the crucifixion. Before Jesus' body could have been released to Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and those were the ones that he released the body to. It was necessary that he be authenticated as being dead. Millions of people assumed that Christ just kind of passed away on the cross. But the Romans were professionals, especially those that were assigned to such a despicable uh, type of work as that of crucifixion. Even executed criminals, not only Christ Jesus on the center cross, but the other two, the thieves on either side of him, one in paradise today, one in hell today. Their deaths would have been certified by the centurion and taken to Pilate before he released their bodies to be buried. So they were skilled in torture. They knew when a man was dead, and the Bible bears witness to that fact. In fact, all four Gospels do, but let's look at just a couple of places here in John's Gospel. John chapter 19 and verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So there's the first act of the centurion. You can drop down to verse 38, and there it says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of, of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Notice the order. Christ is dead. In fact, we find uh, verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side. We also find that, uh, uh, that fulfillment of Scripture that is mentioned there. 
The death certificate is taken to Pilate. Joseph goes in and asks for Jesus' body. He says, take it. For some reason, many, many people are duped into thinking that those that lived 2,000 years ago did not have any procedures or any protocol that they followed. But Pilate did. And so he released the body. Notice what he says. So he came and took the body of Jesus. That's the first thing. Secondly, we are told, in fact, we can see here in this particular passage, verse 39, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews were. So there was great preparation given to the preparation of the body for burial. We are told that as in his birth, swaddling strips of linen cloth were used to prepare the body for burial. At his birth, as he's wrapped in these cloths, Luke tells us, Luke's the only one that uses that word swaddling in the New Testament. Luke tells us that as an infant, he was wrapped so that he would be protected from either his fingernails or some type of insect that may have made uh, uh, its way over his body. It also was believed to strengthen the body of the child, of the infant. So here we have at his death, the preparation of his body. And notice it says about 100 pounds of linen, of aloes, of frankincense, and myrrh. The myrrh would have been mixed with aloes, some types of spices, and it would have formed a gluey substance. The body would then be washed in warm water, laid out on the stone, and you will notice it says in verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so there they laid Jesus. They prepared him for burial. They would then, beginning at the feet, they would wrap the torso all the way to the armpits. They would lay his arms out. They would make sure that all of the strips of linen, all the folds, no knots were permitted. It had to be a singular piece. And so they would fold and wrap and place the spices in his body. The purpose of this was to encase the body as in mummification. They would then take his arms, put his arms down by his side, and they would then wrap his arms around his torso, all the way to the neck. It's the second piece. Same thing. Spices. From there, there was a napkin placed about the head. And this is a separate cloth. And the Bible teaches, we're in John's gospel, look across at verse, uh, chapter 20 and verse 6. Then Simon Peter came, and following him he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, it says about 100 pounds. It is estimated that once this uh, hardened about the body, it was about 115 to 120 pounds. Here's a man that had been emaciated by crucifixion. Certified by the Roman Legion. 
that he was dead, and now he's wrapped and encased in these swaddling clothes. There's a separate linen about his body, about his head, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Carpenters, and Jesus was a carpenter, would often, and you see them today, have some type of cloth that they would use as a handkerchief to wrap and wash their face, wipe their face with a sweat. And that's what you see here. So three types of linen were wrapped in the body. This references the completion. This was done completely, and it, was, it references the completion of Christ's work for God the Father and our salvation. Now, if Jesus had not ascended into heaven, the events of Revelation 19 could not take place. Turn with me there to Revelation chapter 19. Verse 8, verse 7, let, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife made him herself ready. That's the church. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in what? Fine linen. Clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteousness, righteous acts of the saints. Drop down to verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Prepared with linen for preparation to after his uh, crucifixion to be buried. When he returns, he comes with a clothing that is dipped in the residue of his blood. Without the ascension, what we see in the book of Revelation does not take place. Number three, the stone is secured by the Roman seal in the presence of the legion guards. There was much angst among the Jews as to the fact that they, they among, uh, in spite of the disciples, they were the ones that remembered that Jesus said on the third day he was going to rise again. So they said, make the, make the tomb secure, do what you can. Well, the stone, we were told, and Vance was teaching this morning, in Matthew 28, it says that uh, on the, uh, very early in the morning on the first day of the week, the angel comes, rolls back the stone, and sets on it. The stone was placed before an opening. Now, if you remember in John's gospel, Peter and John had to stoop down and look into the tomb. It wasn't 
seven feet tall. It wasn't, it wasn't the threshold of the doors that we have in this building. It was very much shorter. The stone, it is thought, would, weigh, would have weighed approximately two tons. There would have been a trough, and since Joseph, it was Joseph of Arimathea's um, tomb, and he was a wealthy man, he could afford to have this done. The stone would have been placed in a trough that would have been hewn out by hand as it angled from point A to point B. There would have been a slope. They would have hewn the stone as well. The stone itself would have been rolled into position and then a chock-a-block. You know what a chock-a-block is? Placed underneath the stone to keep the stone from rolling down the trough. When Jesus was buried, it occurred rapidly on Friday afternoon. We think they only had an hour, maybe two hours to prepare the body and so forth, so they didn't do it completely. They rolled the stone down, and the women say, who's going to roll the stone away from us? You remember that? Well, the angel did. And the angel sat on the stone, which probably means that he, and he moved it. He didn't say, oh, Swami, Move the stone. That doesn't happen. We're not talking about events that are ethereal. He moved the stone. Tells you something about the strength of an angel, does it not? In fact, he probably moved it to the point, if he's sitting on it, where it rolls completely out of the trough, falls down. Pilate, in Matthew 27, had ordered that the tomb be sealed, which meant that the Roman guards had to be present when there was this sealing taking place. Once the, they removed the chock-a-block that held the, the stone, and the stone rolled in front of the, of the uh, cave, they would then take a cord that was thick, and that generally was the color of the Roman legion or the centurion that was leading that particular, particular legion. And they would affix that cord across the, across the uh, face of this stone. And then they would take wax and clay on either side and affix the seal with Pilate's signet. And the seal is broken. The stone is secured. And yet, it's rolled away. And Jesus, in 1 Peter 2, turn with me there. We are in 1 Peter in uh, uh, general study on Sunday mornings. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. The stone is important because it references the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 8, the Bible there says, Whom having not seen you... Oh, oops, that's chapter 1. Let me make sure I get my chapters right. Verse 8, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. 
But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So we see that this stone, verse 7, therefore to whom you believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Stone held him in. Angel moved it back. Jesus exits. And now he is the chief cornerstone. He is the one who is living and is active and carries about the prime directive of the Trinity. Without the ascension, this does not take place. The fourth thing is Jesus appears to Peter. The 12, and in this 12 I would list uh, Matthias, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 1. And then to 500, this is found in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6. Paul alludes to this. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 1 now for him. We've read the first eight verses. But one of the things that I want to show you. Luke's writing to Theophilus, apparently a friend of his, a nobleman. Uh, He's taken up, verse 2, he'd given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Now the word infallible there literally means proof proves. It's a play on words. Luke would have written this. In our English, it would be difficult to read or we would stumble over it. So the word was chosen to me, or the word infallible is chosen. In the ESV, I don't think it's there. So the proof, proofs confirm the resurrection and the Spirit's ministry. That's what we find in this passage. And then number five, Jesus ascends back to heaven, verses 9 through 11. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. You've got at least one angel. Now, remember, you have four accounts of the resurrection, so each of the Gospels are different. They're not verbatim, and that gives us credence to the understanding of the validity of the Word of God. You and I would not write the same thing. If we were eyewitnesses, we wouldn't write it the same way, and neither did the gospelers. So you have one angel in Matthew. You have two young men in Mark. You have those in the book of Luke, and they're also in John's gospel. But the fact remains that you have two, probably the same two that were at the resurrection, that are now at the ascension, and... They're gazing into heaven. They're saying, well, he told us he was going, but we really didn't believe him. Similar to, he told us he was coming back, but we really didn't believe him. Men of Galilee, why are you looking into the heavens? The same Jesus. Jesus. 
It's taken up into heaven. Well, so come in like manner as you, as you have seen him go into heaven. Now, Danny Aiken, who's president of the Southeastern Seminary, Baptist Seminary, said this. The sun came down in incarnation that he might in ascension return to heaven in exaltation. And we see that, and we're not going to turn there this morning for time, but we, you can jot these down and look at them later on in Ephesians 4. 10 talks about being seated at the right hand of God in 1 Peter 3, obviously talks about his descent that we just read in the Apostles' Creed and his ascent back to be with God the Father. Now, let's look at, next slide, and we're going to move through these rapidly. Why did Jesus ascend? Remember, he said, it is to your advantage that I leave you. It is expedient that I go away. And the first thing is his ascension declared to his disciples that his earthly ministry was done. That's what verse 9 says. He had completed the work his father gave him to do. Secondly, his ascension commenced the work of the Holy Spirit. The promise, and we read briefly of this in John chapter 14, where he promised his disciples, he said, if I don't go away, the helper, the comforter, the one alongside cannot come. When he comes, he's going to do a number of things. He's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to convict the world of righteousness. And he's going to convict the world of judgment. And he says, if I don't go away, these three things will be left in limbo. The Spirit's work is every bit as important as Christ's work. It commenced the work of the Holy Spirit without the ascension. The work of the Holy Spirit would be in limbo. Thirdly, His ascension ended his humiliation. What do you think it was like for God the Son to become incarnate in the flesh and descend into this world, a sinful world, to be cursed, sped upon, whipped, nailed to a cross, and his life crushed out of it? We've all suffered humiliation. But none of us like Jesus Christ. Look to John 17 and verse 5. This is the true Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. John 17 and verse 5. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world began. You think he missed the glory? He's the only one that rightfully deserves glory. 
And then Philippians 2, that great hymn of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It ended his humiliation. Fourthly, his ascension declares that he is master. Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching. God chose preaching to save those that would believe. Peter's preaching. He's closing out his message. He's preaching about the crucifixion. And the Bible says that when Peter finished his message in verse 37, it said those that were that were under the sound of his voice, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And that conviction is the indication of the mastery that Jesus has over our hearts and souls. His ascension declares that he is victor over death, hell, and the grave. Revelation chapter 1. I preached, I think the first, first Easter sermon that I preached here was from Revelation chapter 1. Turn with me there. Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> Verse 17, John said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now this is John the Apostle, the beloved one. He'd walked with the Lord, oh, he loved the Lord. And now when he sees him ascended into heaven, he falls at his feet as dead. That's the way we would approach the Lord Jesus today. He laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. That's the very same thing that Jesus told his disciples often. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't be cowards. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys to hell and to death. Martin Luther wrote 500 years ago, remember this. He told his congregation, the devil is God's devil, and he can do nothing without God. I have keys of hell. Without the ascension, John would not have witnessed this. And finally, his ascension began his work of intercession. What's Jesus doing today? That's what he's doing. He's interceding for you and I. And it declares that he is our great high priest. Turn to the book of Hebrews.
Verses 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we, yet without sin. You ought to circle that. Tempted, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Turn to chapter 7. Verse 25, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. No ascension, no intercession. Chapter 10. Verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Millions upon millions of animals that had been slaughtered since the, since the uh, commencement of Passover, which could never take away sin. Never! All the blood that flowed all the intros, all the, the procedure, the protocol that went into that could never take away our sin. But this man, the ascended one, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, one Millions! One. One forever set down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till his enemies were made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's me. That's you. And so you think you can work your way into heaven? What do you do with that verse? The scripture is vibrantly clear. Next slide. His ascension established the church and provided the church with gifted men. Acts chapter 2, first four verses teach us about Pentecost and the coming of the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 4 says he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Apostles, pastors, Teachers, evangelists. No ascension. No Pentecost. No ascension. No gifts to the church. 
His ascension declared finally his, he would return as King of kings and Lord of lords. And for that, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and with this we'll close. Verse 13, I urge you, Paul writes to Timothy, in the sight of God, who gives life to all things before Christ Jesus, who witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate. We read that in the Apostles' Creed. A good confession. There was no accusation, that fair accusation brought before Pilate about Jesus. Then you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light which no man has seen or can see. You and I must be transformed. We must have resurrected bodies to see God. God told Moses, you can't see me. I am of much more pure holiness than a sinful man look at me. That's why Jesus became incarnate, and now that's why he's ascended back into heaven, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Piper says Christ Jesus' resurrection and ascension shows the world to be wrong. A lot of smart people. But the denial of the gospel message of the passion of the resurrection and ascension just makes you wrong, smartly wrong. That's all it makes you. It convicts the world about the justice of Christ's crucifixion and proves that they're guilty. My sins put Jesus there. Your sins put Jesus there. It just proves I'm guilty. It just proves you're guilty. The Holy Spirit's work is to make that clear after the resurrection and judge the ruler of this world, which has already been done, Colossians 2 tells us. The judgment of Satan was accomplished in the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. We need them all. Last slide. Jesus went back to heaven. Went back to be with his father. Does heaven excite you? Or you think, oh, and I, I've gone longer than normal this morning. Which for me, I don't know, even know what normal is, but gone longer than normal. Or two lengthy sermons. Too, too long. Preacher's too long. Does heaven excite you? Or do you think it's going to be a continual boredom? For those that are unsaved, it certainly will be. A continual boredom. Josh McDowell's little book, The Resurrection in You, he says this. Science fiction writer Isaac Asimov expressed the attitude many have about heaven when he wrote, I don't believe in the afterlife, so I don't have to spend my whole life fearing hell or fearing heaven. For whatever the tortures of hell, I think the boredom of heaven would be even worse. And billions of people think that. 
Sadly, a similar view of the afterlife is common even among Christians. Our vision of heaven is often limited to an extended, boring, uninspiring church service. Or many influenced by cartoons and jokes see it as a place where we will all mosey uh, among the clouds in long white gowns while strumming on harps. Where did that come from? Where did it come from? You see it in the Bible? Fake news. Somehow our image of heaven has become grotesque, grotesquely distorted, and the prospect of life after death has not captured our imaginations or transformed our lives. He asked his students, he's not teaching anymore, but he did for years, what they would do if they only had three days to live before they died and went to heaven. How would they spend those few remaining days? Answers included skydiving. I don't understand it, but skydiving, traveling, surfing, or having sex. I followed up with a simple question. So you think that there will be pleasures and experiences in this life that won't be repeated in heaven before you die, and you'll miss out on them altogether because they won't exist there. And all but two of his students answered yes. The prospect of heaven dismayed and disappointed them. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he ascended so he can descend in glory. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess, believer, unbeliever. Satan, his minions, Michael, Gabriel, their minions, every knee will bow. Spurgeon, in a sermon on Easter, said, Jesus wears all the glory which the pomp of heaven can bestow upon him, which 10,000 times 10,000 angels can minister to him. You cannot with your utmost stretch of imagination, conceive his exceeding greatness. Yet there will be a further revelation of it when he shall descend from heaven in great power with all of his holy angels. And then he will set upon the throne of his glory. Father, into thy hands we commit the remainder of the service. We pray that you would move in your midst as you always do. Remind us that this same Jesus, the crucified, buried, risen again, and ascended, the blessed and only potentate, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords.
will one day return as the angels promised in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. May we be prepared for that coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so the invitation this morning is simple. <clears throat> if you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then I implore you that you call out to him today. He loves you. The Bible is replete with that message. And the only reason people don't go to heaven is because of their choices. You have a responsibility. We're going to sing one verse of a hymn. If the Lord's spoken to you, we want you to come. We can't save you, but we can take an open Bible and lead, uh, go to a, a private room and lead you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that is your choice. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Jesus takes you as you are. He will never leave you as you are. You can't meet the Lord of glory and remain the same. Can't. Doesn't happen. And so we encourage you as we sing, make your way out of the pew. We'll be glad to... Uh, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and God's leading you into the fellowship of this church, perhaps you know the Lord as Savior. You need to follow him in a believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that. We've had uh, several over the past few weeks uh, come forward and let the folks know that they've been saved and want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Maybe the Lord's leading you by transfer of, of uh, letter or uh, statement of faith. Won't you come? As a child of God, he ascended so that we can carry out the Great Commission. That is our responsibility. Let's do that till he comes. What number, Brother Mike? 